Okay, we're going to continue in the book of Matthew today, Matthew 4. One day Jesus was in the temple courtyard teaching, and he was talking to people uh, as he was standing in what is known as the courtyard of women. Now, the temple courts was divided up into three areas. Closest to the temple was where the men could go. The men could go and worship in the, you know, kind of outer court area. And then the next court was called the court of women, and that's where they could go and worship. They couldn't go all the way in, but that's where they uh, could congregate. And then outside of that, the furthest circle was called the... Uh, the court of the Gentiles. So that's where people, if you believed in Yahweh and you wanted to worship Yahweh, but you were not a Jew, that's where you could go. And so you had to stay outside. But one day Jesus is teaching in the court of women. He wanted to be in a place, see where the men and the women could be. And it's during the Feast of Tabernacles. And they also call that the Feast of Booths. And what that was, they, they basically celebrated or commemorated their time in the desert where God had led them out of Egypt and they actually lived, they built these little uh, tents or huts um, outside their homes or on the roofs of their houses. And they would live in those little tabernacles or booths that week during the seven days of the feast to kind of just remember what their ancestors had gone through and what, you know, God had rescued them out of. And one of the um, symbol, you know, symbolism uh, that they had done was they set up in these courts all these you know, huge candle operas, all these lights, and it was called the illumination of the temple. And so they were all around the courtyards, and Jesus is standing there talking to this group of people, and scholars believe that at the end of the illumination, at the end of the feast, that they would go around and they would actually put out these lights, right? The feast was over, they would blow out the lights, and Jesus was standing here talking to this group of people, and that's when he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, can you imagine the impact that it would have had on this group of people that are standing there listening to Jesus speak, and you're talking about the illumination of the temple, and they're putting out the lights, and he's basically telling them, I am the light of the world. I am the light that will not be extinguished. And he's basically telling them his deity. He is declaring his deity, saying, I am the light of life. So Matthew um, tells us, and he uses this metaphor of light that it talks about in the Old Testament, in the scriptures, to describe the Messiah. And that's where he chooses to start as Jesus launches into ministry. And we've learned over the past couple weeks about his baptism, his coronation, uh, as we called it, and then him being commissioned, being sent out into the desert to be tempted by Satan. So he has his first test of his kingliness in the desert where Satan tries to get him to doubt God's plan to try to get him to doubt God's will and to follow his own will. That's what we talked about last week. And the first way he tried to do that was to get Jesus to doubt God's provision. You know, basically, you're out here in the desert. You're about to die. You're almost starving to death. Why would the Father do this to you? This can't be hard as a plan. And by the way, being hungry is just a natural thing, right? Like, you're hungry. That's a very natural problem. Like, you can solve that very natural problem supernaturally by just turning some of these stones into bread. He's trying to get him to doubt God's plan. But if he had done that, he would have been following his own will and not his father's will. And in that way, using his power against what the father's plan was, would have been to sin. And the next, the next way he tried to get him to fall was to doubt God's protection. Uh, basically saying, okay, if you won't use your divine power 
to protect yourself. We are going to tempt God to, to use his power to protect you. So go up on the temple. God's already promised that he's going to deliver you, that he's going to save you. So jump off the temple, prove it, make him prove it. And also this would be a huge sign to all the people standing there that you are the Messiah because you jump off the temple and God's going to save you. And then that doesn't work. So his last ditch effort is to try to get Jesus to doubt the father's promise. He tells Jesus, he said, listen, if you will bow down and worship me, I will give you all of the nations of the world right now. Like everything that you think is rightfully yours, I will offer you a shortcut. Why go through the suffering? Why go to the cross? I can give everything that you want right now. And he's offering Jesus a shortcut, but he uses the sword of the spirit. He uses the word of God to combat Satan. And that is something that should be extremely comforting to all of us because we can do that. We can wield the sword of the spirit. We can wield the scriptures if we are submitted to the scriptures and if we have it hidden in our hearts, right? David said, your word I've hidden in my heart that I may not sin against you. He also said that your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. He likened the word to a light and a light that reveals truth, a light that illuminates, and a light that exposes, exposes sin. And that's exactly what Jesus did, why he's called the light of the world. The apostle John starts off his gospel by saying that in Jesus was life, And in that life was the light of the world. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And then John's cousin, John the Baptist, he said that he came to bear witness to the light. He said, I am not the light. I came to bear witness to the light. And so Matthew starts to describe Jesus's ministry after he left the desert by an Old Testament prophecy on how he is light. And that is going to be our starting point for today. It is Matthew 4 starting in verse 12 and going through 22. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, And for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called to them, and immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. Now, Matthew's gospel, if you remember, is written to a Jewish audience. It's written to his people to show them that their Messiah King had, in fact, come. The Jewish people missed it. They missed it. They were the ones who said, we will not have this man rule over us. But he is using the Old Testament scriptures to prove to the people that Jesus is, in fact, the fulfillment of those prophecies. And so he uses prophecy after prophecy to point to that fulfillment. And here he quotes Isaiah chapter 9, which is another messianic chapter, 
which references a couple different things, but specifically where the Messiah was going to live. And this is Isaiah 9, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. And this is what Matthew was quoting. Now, why was there gloom and anguish? Why were these areas brought into contempt? Zebulun and Naphtali, if you remember, were two of Jacob's sons, two of the 12 tribes of Israel. And their territory was in this northern region, in the region of Galilee. And the reason that they were in gloom and anguish is because when they came out of the desert, when they went into the promised land, they were told that they were supposed to drive out all of the people, all of the pagans in that land, but they did not do it. They did not drive out all of the people that were there. And for that reason, it created big problems for them. God said, drive them out because you guys have a big problem succumbing to temptation. You guys fall into worshiping foreign gods, so you need to drive them all out. They didn't do it, and they fell into that pattern of falling away from God, right? And then God having to give them over to foreign lands, to foreign armies, to be disciplined. And then eventually they would cry out and God would send a deliverer. And then before long, they would fall back into idolatry. And this cycle continued over and over again. And it was no different here in Zebulun and Naphtali. And as a result, that area became um, a mix, a melting pot of Jewish and Gentile people. And they ended up intermarrying with a lot of these Gentiles, which was a huge problem. And it was also a place of turmoil. We talked a few weeks ago about all the wars that were happening in that area. And they were marching back and forth through these territories. And the people there had been battered and they had been torn apart. That's the reason why it's called the region or the place of death. So you have this spiritually dark place that the rest of the country, quite honestly, looked down upon. Because it was filled with Gentiles and all of these half-breed Jews. Interesting to me that that is the place where our Savior chooses to call home. This place that is spiritually dark, that is filled with uh, people that the rest of the country look down upon. These are the ones who get the first glimpse of the light. He didn't, he didn't head to the big city of Jerusalem. He headed to the place where it was darkest. And if the messianic light can dawn in the darkest of places, then that means that the Messiah's salvation is only by grace. It's only by grace. Uh, there's nothing that we could do to earn it. It's not because of our pedigree. It's not because of anything that we deserve. Uh, Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. This is out of the message translation because it's, it's so candid. And, and Paul is being real candid with the church here. 1 Corinthians 1 verses 26, starting in verse 26. Take a good look, friends, at who you were before you got called into this life. I don't see many of the brightest and the best among you. Not many influential, not many from high society families. Isn't it obvious that God deliberately chose men and women that the culture overlooks and exploits and abuses? Chooses these nobodies to expose the hollow pretensions of the somebodies? That makes it quite clear that none of you can get by with blowing your own horn before God. Everything that we have, right thinking, right living, a clean slate and a fresh start comes from God by the way of Jesus Christ. Isn't that great? Take a look at you guys. Like, there ain't many, you know, sharp tools in the shed, is what he's saying. <laughs> Jesus didn't come to call the righteous or the self-righteous, 
but sinners to repentance. And in a sense, if you think about it, we kind of live in a land of Zebulun and Naphtali. We live in a very dark time spiritually, confusing times. Our nation right now is ravaged. It's torn apart. It's full of groups of people that are fighting and being divisive, um, socially segmented, battling with each other. And the church has kind of joined in that fight in the wrong way, I think, um, instead of being a light. But the only thing that is going to bring people out of darkness is Jesus. The only thing that's going to bring people out is Jesus. Um, It's not a vaccine. It's not a government program. It's not a social circle. Nothing is going to bring people out of the darkness unless they see the light. And Jesus looked at his disciples and he said, now you are the light of the world. He said, I am the light of the world. And then later he said, you are the light of the world. Because we have Jesus inside of us, now we are the light of the world. And that light is supposed to go into the darkness because that's where Jesus went. That's what he did. And Jesus said, it's kind of like a lamp that gets put up on a shelf and it gives light to everybody that's in the house. Like you don't take a lamp and you don't put a basket over it. If you guys remember the song, this little light of mine, put it under a bushel. No. I'm going to let it shine. (laughs) Don't let Satan blow it out. (laughs) But the church over time has really lost sight of its total mission, which is to impact the world with the gospel and to bring people out of darkness. On a dangerous seacoast where shipwrecks often occurred, uh, there was a crude little life-saving station that was set up. Uh, The building was actually just a hut, really, but a few um, dedicated sailors were there, and they would keep watch over this area, and they would go out day and night when there were shipwrecks, and they would look for people that needed to be saved, for people that might be drowning. And so some of those that lived in the area that heard about it and some of the you know, sailors that had gotten saved wanted to help out. They wanted to give back. And so they put in their time, they put in their money, they put in their effort, they bought a boat and they bought crew, they, you know, they, they hired more people, the crews, uh, to help out to do the life-saving. And the little life-saving station began to grow. And some of the members of the life-saving station became unhappy because the building was pretty crude at this point. And they said, this is really not a great place for people that are being saved, you know, to come back to. For this to be their first, you know, you know um, experience with the life-saving station. And so uh, they switched out the emergency cots with beds and they replaced the furniture in this growing life-saving station. Now, the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members, and they decorated it. They wanted to make it as nice as possible, and it became kind of a social club. And over time, fewer and fewer members became interested in going out on these life-saving missions, and so they hired lifeboat crews to do some of the work, to go out and do the life-saving The life-saving motif, though, still stuck around in their decorations and in all of their initiations. They actually had one of the original rowboats that they put in a room where they did, you know, the ceremonies. And about this time, a large ship wrecked off the coast. And the lifesavers went out and they were bringing in boatload after boatload of, you know, sick, cold, wet people. And as they were looking at this, the whole place was in chaos. And so the building, commu- you know, building committee decided they needed to build a shower house outside of 
the life-saving station so that these people could be cleaned up before they were brought inside. And at the next meeting, there was a split among the members because most of the members thought that they should, you know, stop the club's life-saving activities altogether because it was kind of unpleasant and it was a hindrance to the normal social life of the club. But some of the members insisted that they keep on doing the life-saving because that was the purpose. That was the reason why they get started. And after all, they were still called a life-saving station. But they were finally voted down and told that if you guys want to go save random people out of the ocean in these waters, you should just go start another life-saving station. And so they did. And as the years went by, that station experienced some of the same problems that the original life-saving station did, and it kind of evolved into a club. And so they started another one, and history repeated itself until one day you could make a trip to that coast, and you would find lots of exclusive clubs, but very few people who would actually go out on the life-saving missions, and many of the people were drowned. The church is the life-saving station. But if nobody goes out on the missions, if nobody goes to sea, nobody's going to be saved. They need to be brought in. And we don't need to make the station more comfortable. We need more people that will go out to sea, more people that will go on the missions. And so who does Jesus recruit? He recruits some fishermen, which I think is pretty cool. Now, Because Matthew writes topically rather than chronologically, um, it's hard to get a sense of the timetable of how things are happening. But about a year has passed since Jesus was baptized and went into the desert. And when he returned and he hears that John the Baptist, his cousin, has been arrested. And when John's arrested, this marks the end of the forerunner's ministry. This is the end of his ministry and the beginning of Jesus's. So in Matthew's gospel, when John's ministry ends, Jesus's begins. So this is the right time. It's the right time for Jesus to start his ministry. We talked a couple weeks ago about King Herod and how brutal he was and how, you know, the Jewish people feared him, but they also hated him because he was not actually a Jew. Like, it was bad enough that there was the occupation by the Romans in their country, but now they had this fraud of a king who was basically doing anything he wanted. And John had heard that Herod had taken his brother's wife he had stolen her away. And he said, I'm going to go down there and I'm going to confront him. And that's ultimately what got him arrested. Condemning immorality is never popular uh, because the culture doesn't want to hear that the things that they prefer are wrong. This is front page news in our country right now in America. You know, don't judge me. You do you. I'll do me. I'm living my life. I'm not hurting anyone. Don't push your convictions on me. That's what we hear. Remember when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus on the roof and he's talking to, it's Nick at night. That's the original Nick at night. He's talking to Nicodemus and he says, this is the judgment, Nick, that light has come into the world, but people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Culture doesn't want us to shine a light on their deeds because they know inherently, they know that what they're doing is evil, that their ways, their deeds are wrong. Herod and his stolen wife thought they were acting pretty freely. They have the freedom to do whatever they want. They're the king. They're the queen. But what they didn't know is that their actions actually triggered events that had been planned by God since before the foundation of the world. John's arrest, as he told his followers, Jesus must increase, 
and I must decrease. Now is the right time, and Jesus takes center stage. It was also the right place. We read in the Gospels about the Sea of Galilee. Um, it was only about 60 miles by 30 miles. It was only about 60 miles, um, I guess, tall by 30 miles wide. And to kind of give you some reference, Lake Michigan at its widest point is about 118 miles across. So it was really more of a lake. They called it the Sea of Galilee. But some scholars estimate that about 2 million people lived in and around this region of Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee. So it was a big place. A lot of people were fishing that area. It was full of fishermen and farmers. And keep that in mind when we get into the parables that Jesus is talking about, because he's addressing a group of people who would have understood these parables. They were a group of people that lived by agriculture. There's not a lot of farmers uh, among us today. So sometimes those things, those analogies seem kind of strange, but the people that were listening to Jesus would have understood it perfectly. The Jewish historian, uh, Josephus, I didn't know this this week, but he was also a governor of Galilee at one time. He called the area up there everywhere productive. Like it was kind of like the breadbasket of Israel. Um, They could grow, you know, fruit trees up there. They could grow wheat and all kinds of stuff. They had all the fish they needed. So it was a very productive place, uh, dynamic in terms of its material fruitfulness, but under, you know, a shadow of spiritual darkness. That sounds kind of familiar, a place that is materially very abundant, but spiritually very dark. Uh, Our economy right now is, I guess you would say stalling, but, you know, compared to the rest of the world, we live in the most productive era in history, and yet our country spiritually is darker than it ever has been. So the lights need to shine. The Jews around Galilee were less sophisticated, uh, less sophisticated, less traditional than their southern counterparts. Uh, really up there, it was kind of like Hicksville. Uh, they actually had their own accent. If you remember when Peter was there at the trial of Jesus, he was standing outside warming his hands by the fire, and somebody came up to him and they said, you, you're with Jesus. You're, you're a Galilean. Your speech betrays you. Like your accent gives you away. If somebody came in, you know, and they had a southern drawl, you know, they would, that would give them away pretty quickly. You ain't from around here. And so that's kind of like this place in Galilee. Josephus wrote that the Galileans were fond of innovations and by nature disposed to change and they delighted in seditions. So basically they were creative, they liked to do things differently, and they were a little rebellious. This is basically Texas up there in Galilee is what it is. So maybe that's the reason why Jesus decided to recruit his disciples from Galilee. They'd be less bound to Jewish tradition and maybe more open to the newness of the gospel message. So this was the right place for Jesus to start his ministry as well. It was also the right message. Uh, He picked up exactly where John left off. He came with a very simple message, a very simple request. Repent and follow me. Uh, He came preaching and teaching. Uh, Preaching is just the proclamation of certainties. It's things that we know to be true. And he taught with authority. Um, We're told in Matthew 7 that he did not preach and teach as those um, like the scribes and the Pharisees. He taught as one who had authority. Because what had happened over time is that these scribes uh, were listening to the rabbis. And the rabbis were giving commentary and they were writing their opinions. And those things had been elevated to the same level of the scriptures. And they were mixing them up to the point where it had lost all its authoritativeness. Because it just kind of became a mix of, well, this is what the rabbi said, you know and here's what it says in Deuteronomy. And when Jesus was teaching, it said that he had all authority. 
you know, they, they weren't guessing, were these men's words or were these God's words? And uh, I think we see this in our country today too, unfortunately, that in a lot of pulpits across America that there are uh, TED Talks or there are, you know, five steps to have a better life. And we really can't tell if they are men's words or if they're God's words. So Jesus taught as the prophets of old did. He taught with authority. In John 12, 49, he said, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. These were God's words. So he spoke, and the people either believed or they didn't. He didn't plead with people. He didn't beg them to follow him. Remember the story of the, of the rich young ruler? Uh, the rich young ruler came to Jesus and he, was, he had questions. He had questions about eternal life. He had been keeping the commandments his whole life, but he said, how can, I, how can I gain eternal life? Because I've followed the commandments since I was a child. And it says that Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Because he really was earnest. He really was keeping the commandments. He was really trying to live a righteous life. But there was one area in his life that was off, and Jesus put his finger on that area. And he said, one thing you, you lack, and that is, go sell everything you have and follow me. Go sell everything and follow me. And it says that the rich young ruler went away sorrowful because he had many possessions. And Jesus was putting his finger on that area of his life that needed to be submitted to him. But when the guy left, he didn't, he didn't beg him to come back. He didn't say, maybe you heard me wrong. Or he didn't say, all of that is just metaphorical. He let him leave. He, he spoke the truth and either believed it or he didn't. Somebody once asked D.L. Moody, they said, how do you defend the Bible? And Moody said, how do you defend the Bible? How do you defend a lion? You just let it out of its cage. They said, speak the truth and let the light do its work. But people first have to be willing to repent so the light can shine in. Uh, repentance leads us to the knowledge of the truth. Uh, that's really the first demand of the gospel. You have to change course because you're headed in the wrong direction. Now, Jesus really could have done all this himself. Uh, he could have preached and taught by himself and enlightened people all by himself, but he chose to call some common men to partner with him. And that's what he does. He calls us into relationship, and then he calls us into service to partner with him in the work. Uh, I heard somebody once say there had to be something about the disciples that made them special. Like they had to have something special about them for Jesus to call them. Uh, but that's completely false. That's not true. There wasn't anything special about the disciples. That's the point. These guys weren't professionals. Jesus was going to show that he could turn the world upside down with a group of, of people that had many flaws. They were insecure. They were selfish. They were hot-headed. Sometimes they were a little dense. They were like us. <laughs> they were like you and me. Rescuing men from sin is God's number one concern. And so it's not just going to be left to, or it shouldn't just be left to the professionals. He calls us all to do the work. So when you hear the word evangelism, it's easy to think of maybe a guy standing on a corner with a bullhorn or a missionary or maybe even, you know, like a crusade, a Billy Graham crusade when we think of evangelism. But the prime, the primary thrust of the Great Commission, go into all the world and preach the gospel, is that we are called to call others. We're called to call others. Proverbs 11.30 says that he who is wise wins souls. If you want to be wise, win souls. The only thing you can take with you into heaven is people. That's it. That's the only thing you can take. So he who is wise 
wins souls. The church, uh, at least in the civilized or the developed world um, here in America, has been uh, unfortunately turned into kind of a business model. Honestly, it's been turned into a business model. We look at, you know, professional corporate America. And so we have somebody up front who's kind of like the CEO, who's kind of like the president, the one who leads. And then we've got a board, a board that helps make decisions. And then we have, you know, kind of managers. We have elders that help, you know, kind of manage things. And then we have, you know, the people that attend. We have kind of the people that do the work. And so we have this, you know, westernized business uh, model of the church. But that's not the model that we were given from the beginning. It's not the model we were given from the beginning. And you may have heard people say, what we need to do is we just need to get back to the early church, the way, it, the way they did it back in the book of Acts. And I agree. I think that would be great. Um, not a lot of people want to live that way because it is called to live in, you know, day-to-day fellowship with each other. Uh, this is what it says in Acts 2. This is right after the Holy Spirit falls on the disciples. They're all in the upper room and they're praying and the Holy Spirit falls upon them and Peter can't help himself and so he goes outside and there's thousands of people there because it's the Feast of Pentecost and so there's literally hundreds of thousands of people in Jerusalem and he goes outside and he says this, Verse 38, and Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belonging and distributing to the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So this early church in Acts was an evangelistic church. It was a missions-minded church. But there was also a lot of persecution in Jerusalem, a lot of persecution at the time. And so there's something that we have to square in our minds if we're going to reach out to the world. And that is this. If you are going to reach out to the world with the message of the gospel, you have to be willing to be rejected by the world. If you are going to reach out to the world, you have to be willing to be rejected by the world. Jesus said, if you want to save your life, if you want to save your life, you want to save your reputation, let me say it that way, then you're going to lose it. But if you want to lose your life, lose your reputation in me, you will save it. It's the upside down kingdom of God. Verse 18, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. What were Peter and Andrew doing when Jesus called them? They were casting their nets, right? They were casting their nets. This is exactly what they're going to be doing spiritually. I think it's interesting. That's what they did as their occupation, and that's what they were going to be doing spiritually. And I just read that portion from Acts where Peter casts his preaching net, and he hauls in 3,000 people. That's a pretty good catch. And Andrew, we're told in John 20, some Greeks came to the disciple Philip, and they said, we want to go see Jesus. And so Philip goes to Andrew, and Andrew says, come on. And he brings them 
to Jesus. Andrew brings people to Jesus. He actually is the one who went to Peter, his brother, and said, we have found the Messiah. Come and see. And so Andrew was also casting his net and bringing people to Jesus. And when God calls us into service, there's the expectation that we're going to use the gifts that we're being given. Jesus can use that. He said, I can use that fisherman mentality in Peter and Andrew, and he wants to use the giftings that we've been doing, that we have as well. And oftentimes, it's the things that we are currently doing. It's the things that are right in front of us. Um, It's Chris and Megan in high school impacting kids for the Lord. It's Mark and Christy with their business and with Overflow, where Jesus is being talked about all day long, which is awesome. It's Shine with Alicia teaching kids to do theater, uh, the things that she is, you know, awesome at. (laughs) among other things. All right, I digress. It's the things that are right in front of us that God wants us to use to shine our light to expand his kingdom. And in John 15, 16, Jesus told his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide or last. I have chosen you. That should be one of the best thoughts that floats through your mind every single day, that God chose us. We did not choose him. That means he's not going to lose you. He chose you, and he's not going to lose you. He chose Noah. He chose Abraham. He chose Moses and David. And as great as those men of faith were, God chose them, and he chose you too. Peter writes this in 1 Peter 2.9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. He chose you and he wants to use you, so we just need to follow the light. True story. There was a man many years ago, an Italian man, and he didn't come out of his house much. He was a little bit of a hermit, but he passed away. He was found in his house, and his friends went over there to kind of sort through some of his meager things. He did not go out much. Uh, He was very frugal. But they were shocked to find when they went into the house that in his attic, he had over 240 expensive violins. He had spent all of his money purchasing these expensive violins. And some of the most expensive ones were found in the drawers in his, in his dresser, in his living room. And this misguided devotion to these instruments had robbed the world of their sound. People hadn't heard these violins played because he had hidden them away. He had selfishly hoarded them. A lot of Christians tend to treat their faith like these violins. Uh, They hide their light or they squirrel away their great treasure. And not sharing the light and their treasure, many of whom that they could have witnessed to are left in spiritual darkness and they're left in poverty spiritually. And you've probably heard it a hundred times. I'll tell you again. Uh, We are to share and we are to shine. We're to shine and we are to share. We are his masterpiece to be played and people need to hear it. Verse 21, and going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee and John, his brother in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called to them and immediately left the boat and their father and followed him. On both accounts, Matthew uses the word immediately. Immediately, they got up and they followed Jesus, which I always thought was a little bit odd. Like, this total stranger walks by and you just all of a sudden get up immediately and leave and follow him. 
but they had actually met Jesus before. They had heard of him. They knew of him. Uh, Andrew actually, Andrew and John, so two of these brothers, were actually disciples of John the Baptist before they were disciples of Jesus. And so they're looking for the Messiah. They're listening to John say that he is on his way, and they're listening to John proclaim that, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he's the one that needs to increase, I'm the one that needs to decrease. And they went and told their brothers, Peter and James, we found the Messiah. And so when he walks by, these four brothers immediately leave everything behind and follow Jesus. There's a quote from the famous missionary, Jim Elliott, and he says, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You're no fool if you give what you cannot or give up what you cannot keep to gain what you cannot lose. We strive so hard for things that are temporary. Uh, The Sea of Galilee wasn't going anywhere. Uh, The fish weren't going anywhere, but they couldn't take the boat with them. They couldn't take their nets. They couldn't take their dad with them. They gave it all up for Jesus, who they would never lose. Jesus said to them, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will never abandon you. You will never lose me, and I will never lose you. They didn't count the material things of this world worth keeping at all when they could follow the Messiah. James and John were a bit rough. They were kind of like uncut jewels. Jesus uh, dubbed them the sons of thunder. Uh, They were a little bit hot-headed. There was one time where uh, they were in the area of Samaria, and Samaritans uh, kind of rejected them. They kind of threw them out of town. And James and John are standing there, and they're like, you know, Rabbi, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and burn them up? Jesus is like, you guys, hotheads, hotheads, no. Sons of thunder. They didn't show a lot of promise, much less that they could be dependable uh, or the greatness that we all see them as. Of all the apostles, there was only one that had any kind of religious background at all, and that was Paul. And and he was told how much he was going to have to suffer for the name of Jesus. Paul wrote that God had chosen the foolish things of this world to confuse the wise, the weak things of this world to shame the strong. So Peter and Andrew were casting their nets, and James and John were mending their nets. Um, that's interesting because John, who was once hot-headed, his ministry became a ministry of restoration. He is actually called the apostle of love. So he goes from being a hot-headed fisherman to somebody who's mending hearts, mending communities as the apostle of love. God took their current skill set and put it to work for the kingdom. So I thought it would be interesting to take a look at the qualities of a fisherman. Uh, Fishermen have the reputation of being pretty salty, pretty uh, colorful characters. Uh, If you've ever watched the show Deadliest Catch, uh, you know that's true. They've got quite the vocabulary. First, uh, they're patient. Uh, Anybody who's fished knows that you have to be patient. Um, Times, it was a solitary life. They spent a lot of time alone. And they spend a lot of time waiting. If you have a hard time sitting still, you're not going to make a very good fisherman. Uh, And you have to be patient with people as well. So that character trait of patience would have played in very well for fishing for people. Second, they had to have perseverance. Uh, They had to keep going in the face of failure, uh, throwing their nets time and time again, coming up with nothing. Uh, There was one time where Jesus called out to them. And said they need to throw the net on the other side of the boat. And they said, listen, rabbi, teacher, we're fishermen. We know what we're doing. We've been doing this all night long. 
All night they had been throwing. They had some perseverance. Third, they had to have good instincts to go to the right place at the right time. Uh, Most of their fishing was done at nighttime, which I always thought was kind of strange. But what they used to do is they would go out at night and they would hang a light or a torch out in front of the boat. And so the fish would be able to see it and they would kind of gravitate towards the light which is kind of an interesting, uh, you know, illustration. And then they would cast their nets out and try to catch the fish. So they had to have good instincts and know where to go. Fourth, they had to have courage. Uh, Being out on that body of water, which was very unpredictable and storms would come up all the time, they had to have courage. And lastly, they had to keep themselves out of the picture as much as possible. Um, If you want to catch the fish, you can't scare the fish. So sometimes if we put ourselves in the picture too much and people start looking to us, we can scare the fish when they realize, you know, who we really are. You know, we're, we're not all that dependable, but Jesus is the one that is. And so we need to steer people towards him and not towards us. We need to stay out of the picture as much as possible. You come on. Uh, there is an old hymn called, Let the Lower Lights Be Burning. It's too bad that Bob's not here. He loves hymns. Let the lower lights be burning. And it's based on a story that was told by D.L. Moody. It's D.L. Moody Sunday today. Um, It was about a ship that was coming into the Cleveland Harbor uh, on Lake Erie. And it was coming in on a stormy night. It was a really bad stormy night. And the harbor had two sets of lights. Uh, One was an upper light. It was set up on a high cliff up on a bluff so that it could be seen for miles around. And the ships could see this is the general vicinity of the harbor. But as they got closer, there was a set of lower lights that would guide them past the rocks into the harbor safely. And on this particular night, the, the lower lights had been blown out by the storm. They could see the upper lights. They could get close, but they couldn't be guided into the port safely because the lower lights had been extinguished. And the pilot said, we really should stay. We really should stay out here in the sea so that we can be safe. We shouldn't risk going in and being wrecked on the rocks. But the captain, however, was afraid that the ship was going to be torn up if they stayed out to sea. So he wanted to risk it. He wanted to go into the port. But inevitably, the ship hit the rocks and many of the men drowned. And applying that to the Christian life, D.L. Moody said, the upper lights in heaven are shining just as brightly as they've ever shown. But what about the lower lights? And here's how, here's how the hymn goes. Brightly beams our Father's mercy from the lighthouse evermore. But to us he gives the keeping of the lights along the shore. Let the lower lights be burning, send a gleam across the wave. Some poor struggling fainting seaman you may rescue, you may save. Dark the night of sin has settled, loud the angry billows roar. Eager eyes are watching, longing for the lights along the shore. Trim your feeble lamp, my brother. Some poor sailor tempest-tossed, trying now to make the harbor in the darkness may be lost. Jesus' ministry got started at just the right time. People often wonder, Why didn't he come now? Like he could have just done a Facebook Live and everybody would have seen him in the world. But as you read through the scriptures, it becomes, you know, clear why he needed to arrive as the babe of Bethlehem. And he came at the exact right time. And it started in the right place. In a spiritually dark place, in a seemingly insignificant place, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And this little country, which is just a little bit bigger than the state of New Jersey, that's it is one of the most pivotal places that's in the news every single day because the light dawned there. 
so it can shine in the darkest of places. Jesus had the right message too. The message that we are to be relaying to a dark world. And that is, you need to repent. You need to change course because you're headed in the wrong direction. You need to follow the light. You need to follow Jesus. And that should be our cry. That should be our flame, if you will, that we shine out into a dark world. And that's my encouragement for today, that when you go out this week, that, you know, you just pray, God, give me opportunities. Give me God moments to shine for you. And inevitably, he will put people in your path. You'll be shocked, but it'll be so cool. It'll be amazing when you have that encounter and you get to be a light, when you get to share hope with somebody, the reason for the hope that's inside you, and you'll come away burning brighter, I guarantee it. I guarantee it. You'll be more like him.